The Essence of Tea, Episode 39. Welcome. You are listening to the Essence of Tea podcast, where we share about the world of tea with you. From tea tastings to tea history and culture to tea education, health, and wellness, the Essence of Tea is your tea companion through your personal transformation and growth. I'm your host, Jenny Jie. Now let's get started. Welcome everyone to the Essence of Tea podcast. My name is Jenny Jie, I'm your host, and I am so excited to introduce to you today, Sodhir Prakash from India, and he is a very, very special soul. A friend that I had made a couple years ago when we were visiting India and his TSA in Assam. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. <laughs> Namaste, Jenny. Namaste. I'm curious to know, I know your family has been in the tea industry a while. Would you like to share about how you your, you and your family got into tea, a little of the history of your family's tea journey? Well, uh, it started in uh, our hometown of 100 years in the foothills of Himalaya in Masuri, it's, no, it's a town north of Delhi of 200 miles. It was one of the first areas that the British planted their tea. And my grandfather was a tea shop owner and he used to grow tea and he, he used to sell tea and he wanted to grow it also. And he got some land from the local ruler and he grew, which is already growing tea actually. And he cultivated it. And in, this is in 1900s about. He cultivated it for 30 years. And then the, it was a lease land. It was not sold to him. It was lease land. The lease land out. So he went. He was wondering what to do. He went all the way from Dehradun to Assam, which is more, almost 1,500 miles away, and bought a small garden from the British and from then on, that was in 1939, the family went on buying gardens. We were, my grandfather were two brothers, and between them, they had eight sons. And each time a son graduated, he was sent, a garden was bought for him to manage. Wow. So the family, family went on growing till in the 60s, we had about 20 estates all over India. But as happens with eight people trying to work together, they could not. So in the 60s, they all split and each one got one or two gardens. My father got Khongyati Estate, where I am just now, and I bought a garden in Darjeeling, Glenburn. I also bought a garden in South India called Hiliburiati Estate. And but of course, before this partition, I was a young man. I had the privilege of working in all areas of India on the tea growing. So I'm familiar with any kind of region that you wish to talk about. It isn't just East India or North India or South India. You can ask me a question of anywhere in India and I should be able to technically answer your questions. Oh, wow. That's that's amazing. Well, I might have to ask you some questions. Well, depending on because we're we're starting to grow tea in Alaska. So I have so many different varietals from different types of regions because we're experimenting with it. So. Well, it's it's um, the first criteria you need, because 
the tea grows only if there are certain number of sunlight hours in a day. It's not worried about the winter and the cold, although too, too cold is not good. So unless you are able to substitute the sun with solar lamps or something, which give you the same wavelengths that the sun gives, I don't think you'll be successful, I'm sorry to say. If you are successful, you will have made history. Okay, we'll have to learn something. Yeah, we'll have to learn something if you can grow, grow this. You do have long sunlight hours in Alaska. Maybe you have got 16 hours of sunlight, but that's only for a few months. So you will only grow the tea for those few months, but that's not enough for the tea to flourish. Yes, so it, yeah, uh, we, we so do it, have some supplemental sunlight um, that, that we're using also for the other plants in the greenhouse. So... Yeah, well, we can talk about that later. So that's amazing that you got into tea, well, essentially your whole family and generations. And I know that we had um, toured TRA, which is a Tea Research Association of India. And you used to be the former chairman of, of um, is it Toklai? Yes, that's right. Very good. And so um, can you explain to people around the world who might be listening in what Toklai is? Um, I mean, it's a very, very fascinating place. We saw very, uh, just a small amount of the facilities and we could have spent days visiting there. We were for, um, fortunate enough at the time when I came to visit that we also met the um, the president of the, the tea um, board of India too. So at Tokla, what do you what do you do there, or what happens there if people have no idea what research on tea in India is like? Yeah, that's a good question. First, let me tell you the background of Toklai. Toklai was actually founded in Cambridge when the British were the persons who founded the tea industry in India. They set up a scientific community in Cambridge, UK to do experiments and research on tea. This was called the London Research Center, which was when the British left, it was shifted to India and it came under the Association of Indian Tea Association as a branch. But basically it was founded in Toklai. So basically what we see at Toklai is the, is the successor of the English society. And I think that society still exists in England but in a very uh, fragmentary and small way. So this Toklai over the years has been built up into a scientific institute for tea. The distinguishing factor between this institute and other of tea might be that the research that is done there is called applied research. We are not in Toklai trying to find out fundamental research because that requires a lot of money, a lot of capital, very sophisticated instruments, and it is difficult to do. And it's no use to the tea industry unless it is of use to the tea industry. Tea industry is not wanting to do research just to get a Nobel Prize. So... All the research is focused on how to improve tea. Now, if you give me one minute, I just got a list of projects that are there just now. Hold on. I didn't know that you'd want so much detail, but still. <laughs> okay, now here, here goes. Now, for instance, there is a project 
on okay now for instance this understanding the mechanism of resistance of sucking pests and development of a micro based on bioinformation number 2 <laughs> this is under the head entomology there are four depart five departments one is entomology which studies how pests and diseases can be rid of and increasingly we have to also be sure about uh, the residual levels of pesticides because increasingly the pesticides and weedicides etc they leave they leave toxicity on the plants which is not which leaves which is done with the tea so while while i say this i'm just deviating a little bit on organic tea because i stopped started on this project this this matter of entomology you see i have not understood with all my scientific background which is i must confess that of a layman i am not a great scientist there are only two areas from which a tea bush can take inputs one is from the soil as fertilizers and one is from the foliage as sunlight and rain these are only two areas that it takes now the soil whether where the roots are whatever be the fertilizer you put into the soil whether this organic or inorganic it is going to be metabolized and the plant is going to take only the nutrition nitrogen for instance if jenny is a vegetarian and i'm a non vegetarian and we both need protein she will eat only cottage cheese and i will i can eat fish it doesn't <laughs> matter the protein is the same so it makes no difference whether you put fertilizer organic what you put in the soil this whole thing about it being organic doesn't add or detract anything from the bush the second point is from the foliage yes if you are spraying pesticides and that's how i came to this point just now if you are spraying pesticides or anything on the leaves it will uh, the, the 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 pesticide will kill the bugs or mites but they will remain on the bush as a residue and this residue goes into your cup it doesn't go into your cup it goes into your tea right and it can be harmful to the human thing and so the organic way is not to use pesticides but to use organic methods of controlling pests and diseases now that's very well but still there there's an element of myth in it because when this concern was raised particularly by the germans and the europeans but because they are much more finicky than americans are <laughs> they they the they wanted this residue to be reduced and so we came across a word a term that's called minimum residue level if the residue level of any pesticide falls below a certain parts per million million ppm right then it is no longer harmful because it becomes too too little right yeah so standards have been set if you are drinking tea even if it's inorganic but it satisfies the mrl levels and these mrl levels can be tested in the lab they're not something that someone is just saying that my tea is good you can test it in the lab if it is tested in the lab passes the test then there's no difference between organic and inorganic except for money in the marketing because they get more money for something so i just caution you that 
organic tea may be very nice for saying that it's growing so naturally, but actually as far as benefit is concerned, there's no more health benefit in organic tea than inorganic tea. So I do have a question about that then. So the minimum mm -hmm. residue level for pesticides. So is that what determines whether it's going to be an organic or inorganic pesticide, or is there a minimum requirement? Like you cannot use higher than that. As I said, this is a marketing tool. So a person who's making organic tea, the, the people who started the organic tea movement insisted that organic things cannot be used, and organic things cannot be used. Not even a little bit can be used, even if it makes no sense. Because otherwise, how do they able to market the tea? You see, so we are talking about certified from the from the scientific point of view, from the health point of view. If the MRL goes below a certain level, then you are safe. That it's been determined by human tests. It's been done done drug. It's been a lot of research has been done, and then only decided. So, what your question is? Yes. If you don't use, if you if you go below the minimum level, it's healthy, but it's not organic. For organic, you mustn't use it. So, do they allow past uh, the minimum residue, or is there a re for for India? Is there a level that it has to be below to use on tea plants, whether it's organic or inorganic? You you are saying what is the minimum residue level? How is no, it set? Um, what I'm saying is like, are, is there pesticides that people are not allowed to use because they're yes, over yes. the minimum? Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's certainly pesticides that do not, do not leave the toxicity and they are whatever it is that that pesticide is harmful and you cannot reduce it below the residue level that for that is residue level is for each pesticide is different, Right. Yes. And I may add one other thing. These MRLs are tested on dry tea, whereas the tea that you drink is in liquid form. So it is further, even whatever residue is there on the tea is not there so much in the residue, in the liquid tea. So I mean, they may still be there. I'm not saying don't drink it, but I'm saying not only are your, the safety levels much above what is actually safe, but they are there to keep you happy, I mean, safe. Have you understood what I'm saying? The safety levels of MRL are much higher than what is required to be safe. Because the tea is not done, it's not it's tested, the MRL is tested on the dry tea, it is not being tested on the liquid tea. And the liquid tea, anything that doesn't dissolve in anything goes out. It's only those few chemicals that do not dissolve in the, in the water that would be there. So this is the fundamentals of the thing. But the, the, the peep market won't earn money if they don't, cannot sell that tea. You will see that organic tea sells for the higher rate. It's just a myth, but they sell at a higher rate. So do you find that there are different regions in India that will require more pesticides than others for those who haven't been there before? Because it's a very yes, different country. Yes, not only in India. I'm almost sure that the tea that you grow in Alaska will require very little pesticide. The pest will freeze. Oh, yes. <laughs> the pestle breeze. <laughs> that's true. The pestle breeze. <laughs> well, that's why we actually have um, 
easier export of potatoes outside of our country if they're grown in Alaska and other um, agricultural products, because yes, you're right, because of pestle freeze. <laughs> that's, that's true. But other- I want to just, I would just like to say, I'm not detracting from organic trees. It's good, right? For instance, it's better agriculture not to use chemicals, not to use fertilizers, but to rely on the way of nature. But it isn't necessary. It doesn't mean it does not translate to a better product for which you have to pay more. That's true. And and when I was visiting your um, gardens in Kongia, uh, it was very interesting. Besides me falling into a drainage ditch. That was funny. (laughs) Um, But besides that, I was looking at the soil and you were teaching us about, you know, things that you would not realize, like if the soil wants to hold in a lot of moisture or if it's going to have a lot of raining, you have to worry about molds and things like that. And I thought that was very fascinating, the research that um, TRA has done on that. Yes, Jenny, I I could tell you now, we just touched upon one department that was entomology. Another important department is the soil department. And soil is the base of all crops. And what has happened to tea is that when it was first planted, it had a life, the bush had a life of about 60 years of viable production. Then it was uprooted. And then a fresh bush was planted, which again grew for 60 years or so. Each time you uprooted the bush, you try to replenish the nitrogen and various other nutrients in the soil. But it never was the same as the original. And now we are reaching a time when the the bushes that were planted, replanted once after 60 years are reaching a time when they're going to be replanted after another 60 years and the soil is becoming spent. So to to restore the health of the soil, so many experiments are done. We know that one of the important requirements are bacterias. The various bacterias that permit various nutrients to be dissolved and the plant can take it up. So the the basic nutrients that we have in the soil are NPK, that is nitrogen, which is put in terms of urea, or P as in potash in terms of nutrient of potash, and sorry, K is nutrient of potash and P is phosphate. These are the three basic elements for NPK. And the problem with organic is, um, please don't take me long, but I must tell you more about it. The problem with organic is that organically, there's very little source of potash. You don't get potash organically. Other two nutrients you get by making compost, but you don't. This is a problem, how to solve it. So actually, the tea planter would like to go organic, but he can't go completely organic because of these limitations. And that's why he is where he is. I mean, it's not an easy job. So soil, as you said, then soil, we also have with that water management because tea cannot, tea roots cannot grow in soil that has a water table that is three feet or less above the, or below the ground level. Means the roots of the tea grow go down up to three feet. So if the water remains below three feet, it doesn't matter. But anything above the three feet, 
the the tea wants water that is basic requirement but it, the water must move it mm. cannot have stagnant water so what is very necessary in water management is to see that where it doesn't it does not matter in hills or terrain which is hilly because the water flows in any case but in places like dwars or like in assam the water does not flow and so you have to make you have to make drains and those are very important so that second thing and we also the climate is changing yes. so you have got a department of climate change we have seen at tokrai that over 100 years the temperature has gone up by about 1 to 2 degrees now this may seem insignificant to a layman but for a plant it makes a very big difference and so climate change uh, the increasing amount of carbon so in the, in the, in the atmosphere these are long term experiments that we're doing the third area after after entomology and soil management and your water management would be plant breeding now this is where it started off actually because when tokrai started all the natural things were in place in any case they didn't have to do research on it but plant breeding was very important now there are two basic fundamental plants plants that are there in tea or two different varieties one is the chinese bush which is called the chinese sensensis uh, camellia sensensis and the other is the assamic assamica sinensis they are two different varieties their genetic makeup is maybe very similar but they do have different characteristics and the china was founded was found in china and the assam no one knows actually whether it came also from assam i don't want to go into any controversy about it <laughs> but it is definitely grows in the climate of assam it flourishes in assam is a broad leaf bush and the and the liquor is very strong its characteristics make, makes very good ctct <laughs> right and the chinese bush is like a small little leaf like the eyebrows of a japanese doll right very small they like very yes very slender like you madam and <laughs> and they uh, make very good chinese tea the green tea that you have and they make very good long leaf tea which you have and so chinese tea is grown in in, in apart from china but in a small way in darjeeling and that's that is called the chinese tea or the chinese bush now from these tea bushes a lot of scientists have done breeding means you take one bush from china and one bush from assam and you cross breed them how they did it was originally you you plant them say in a in nursery of 4 feet by 4 feet and every alternate row you put a different bush so when the bushes grow and the tea is not a bush it's a tree when it grows up to its tea height then it flowers and then like all other flowers they pollinate and they cross pollinate and you get a different breed a different makeup so this brings me to another point of uh, interest that the breeding plant physiology and breeding is another department in tokrai we have bred maybe 39 you see you breed a plant for various characteristics for instance you want someone in 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 a droughty area you want a drought resistant plant or if you want someone growing someone for alaska you want a plant that doesn't want 
two long hours of sunlight, right? So you bleed for that. You find out, and this is all done now by what is called molecular analysis. You you do the gen is biotechnology is the way out of bleeding today. What was done by I described as being done in the in the in the nurseries is now being done in the laboratories, right? So that saves the way a lot out, of time and years. <laughs> Anything good takes time and years, my dear. <laughs> if you want to do anything good, even the even the tea plant takes seven years from the time it is sown to the time it starts giving you leaves that you can use. So time is certainly if you are if you are a person who believes in the philosophy of higher than fire and bang bang, then tea is not for you. <laughs> It's true. We take time for tea. It's true. <laughs> Correct. Correct. So that's it. So that's another department of Tokwai, most modern one, biotechnology and physiology, which is what is being done. There's a, a third way which breeding is to be done. That is called tissue culture. Now, I know tissue culture is very prominent in, in the American subcontinent, in, in agriculture, or many, many all over the world. But the reason why it's not really useful in tea is for one simple reason, that when you put, take a tissue culture and replicate it, you replicate it 100%. It's almost exactly the same with the parent that you started with. And you have made some mistake about some weakness in that cell that you replicated, then it will be there in all the cells. All the bushes will have the same weakness on the same strength. And you're not going to realize it because you have to take seven years before it grows. So you cannot take seven years and then decide you made a mistake and then uproot it. It's not possible. You can do that with tomatoes. If one year you lay some tomatoes which are not not properly bred, not the, the tissue culture for those tomatoes has not been done well, thoroughly, at the end of the year, you can throw away those tomatoes and start with another breed of tomatoes, right? But yeah, this can't they, be done with tea. So you're talking right? about clonals? Clonals is halfway house okay. between the seeds which come from a nursery by cross-pollination and the molecular with, uh, by the, by the uh, tissue culture, which is come by just replicating a tissue. A clonal is halfway. You take two, two bushes and you take the, the stem and the leaf of one and stem and the leaf of the other and put it together. Or you take the root of one and the leaf of the other, put it together and plant it. One of them is called a scion and one is called a rooter that becomes a new plant. It will have the characteristics of two plants, but their genetic pool will be less diverse than of a seed. The seed has a maximum diversity in its genetic pool. The clonal has halfway house and the, and the tissue culture has no genetic oh, diversity. Okay. So a prudent planter usually does when he plants his seed body or any plant he does, he takes 10, does not like to plant more than 10% of one variety. Because if there's anything wrong with it, he's only suffering 10%. That's true. Wow. So definitely being a tea grower for, for many generations, like your family has come from, you have experience to seeing how these plants are 
are doing, adapting, um, you know, you're able to have that time because if it's seven years to find out how this tea plant turns no. out, it's a large Yeah, investment. but this, no, Jerry, but this is the duty on TRA still. This is what the scientists at the TRA do. They grow it, they spend the time, they're paid to, to spend their time on it. And when they're satisfied that the farmer is not going to have a problem, then only they release it. Otherwise, they don't just, just experiment and tell you. That's true. And that's that's such a great resource. Now, are other countries reaching out to TRA besides in India? As far as research is concerned, um, there is a small research station in Kenya. There is one small station in Malawi. There is a station in Sri Lanka. But they are minuscule compared to the amount of knowledge and research that has been done at Tokrai. Tokrai is the oldest and the largest institute today. But I don't like to boast of it because for the last 10, 15 years, we have had to go very slow. Uh, you see, research has become, it was primarily funded by the industry. And when it was funded by industry, it became accountable because industry wants to know where its money is going. But over the years, the government, like all governments, wanted to poke their nose into it. And they did this by funding, put increasing funds. So as a fact now, Tokla is dependent on the government for money. And government is very, very poor at seeing accountability. So I'm pleased you are not to quote me on this matter, but it's coming to almost a ruin because the government thinks that they are research. They can handle research. Nowhere can government can handle research. Except in NASA, of course. <laughs> and, and so that's, I mean, and there's so many changes too going on at the same time. Like, I feel like with climate change, so many factors, these other departments, are they being greatly affected then? What their research could possibly be noticing right now? Mm, I don't know because problems come up every day. Who would have thought about climate change 20 years ago, right? And even now, the, the problem that you're fearing from climate change may be 10, 20 years away. But we have to start the research now to see what's there. So I, I, I don't think that at any point of time, there'll be always different areas that have more importance. That could be true, yes. And now, I know Shalini, your sister, told me before that you had many family members who had were, were on the board or had worked with um, uh, TRA. So is that true? Did you have other family members who were part of TRA in the past, too, besides you? See, um, that's a difficult question. If you're asking me whether they've been office bearers, in my family, there have been two members who were also past chairman of TRA, right? But in the in history of TRA, which every three years they get a new chairman, right? So that be that would be uh, in 100 years, maybe 30 chairmen. So three chairmen is only, only 10%. So I don't know how you want to say the importance. But yes, anyone who's in T, right, and interested, should be a member of TRA and the whole industry pays subscription. We all pay, depending on the crop, we pay a subscription to the TRA to fund them. What I was saying to you earlier was that where is that fund used to come entirely from the tea industry 
Now, more than 50% comes from the government who have got no other interest. So really, your family, from all, you know, your your grandfather and all the people who had split up into different tea plantations and then didn't quite work out and then did their own thing. But essentially, your family has been very involved in the tea industry in India and has been very active in understanding and learning and educating to make yes, better yes. and better teas. That That's true. That's why my grandfather was in Dehradun, my hometown. We are called the Chaiwala family. And yeah. some people call us Mr. Chaiwala, but now <laughs> the prime minister is also a Chaiwala, so I can't say anything. But uh, yes, you're right. We, we, we were the second large, when the British left India, we were the second largest Indian family to own tea gardens. The first, the largest family was Kanois, right? And the second largest was us. Then it came, then came other Indians, but we all split up otherwise, uh, be quite different, but doesn't matter. It happens. Yeah, yeah, that's so amazing. And now there's so many different, like small gardens, large gardens, independent growers. Um, the tea industry has changed a lot in a hundred years, or how tea is sold or harvested. I remember I was visiting around Assam, and there's people who just grow tea at their house, and then they'll take it to like. Um, like a middleman factory, and it's a mix of all kinds of people's teas together, right? You are you are absolutely right. Uh, originally, in the British times, and not long ago, all the gardens, all the estates were held by by uh, estate owners who had a minimum of four or five hundred hectares of tea under them and cultivating them. But over the last twenty years. The small grower, the person who's just growing on one acre or two acres of land has come into being so much so that today 50% of the production in India is from small growers and only 50% is from the large. So what you're saying, it's happened and I don't see the way that things are going. The trend will change because mm. cost cost of uh, the, the cost of uh, uh, hard, cost of running a tea estate on a large scale is becoming expensively, very expensive. It's much cheaper for a small grower who has his own labor, who's doing his own work, because he doesn't have to pay himself. So, it's very interesting because in America, we have that going on right now, but we call it the gig economy. Like anyone can just start finding some side work and not under necessarily an employer. And so it's like India finds that, you know, small growers can just work for themselves independently and not have as much overhead as the larger estates. And in America, mm -hmm. some people are finding the same way with their jobs that, you know, they can work when they want to work and do what mm -hmm. they want to do and not have the overhead or have to have the strict regulations of working under an employer or owning a company. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I think that's a movement of even as Charlene will bear me out, she says half the persons who own tea shops are actually now employed but have now become self-employed and finding their own business. It's happening with the trend of the times. But, uh, but tell me, Jenny, I'll ask you a reverse question. You see, in America, what happened for farming? Firstly, originally in Kansas and the Midwest, 
all the farms were owned by small farmers, not very large farmers. But over the years with mechanization, we find that big companies are owning huge tracts of farms and the little farmers have been thrown out. Is that right? So the smaller farmers have been, what was the question again? I'm saying that, that originally the farms in USA, in Midwest, that I read the history of, they were farmers who owned, say, 200 acres, 300 acres, right? And yes. It was, it was a farm, farmer was running his own farm. And over the years, because of depressions, prices of food went down, the farmer had to sell his land, and it went to big companies who had these threshers and big machines. Up now, the entire farming in the USA is held by big corporates, not yeah. by small farmers. Mm-hmm. So why is it right? So I'm just asking this question because it's the reverse happening in India. You're having yeah. big corporates. Yeah. Well, and I, I think a lot of political things in America right now with the big farmers uh, or the big corporations who own a bunch of the small farms, now there's kind of a movement for smaller growers and people wanting to know exactly where their food comes from. And people, the, the trend right now for those who can afford um more expensive produce will go and find the original source of that and go and support the smaller growers, the smaller mm-hmm. farms, the family run mm-hmm. farms, because they mm-hmm. want to not support the big conglomerate corporations. So mm-hmm. you see a divide of those people who can afford it will mm-hmm. go and spend more money on produce that is for smaller farms. Um, and then those who don't have as much income will just buy whatever's available at a cheaper price. And um, I feel like that's the same thing too with um, not necessarily the same way of looking at it for India, but like speciality teas or like, yeah. you know, amazing teas that you'll see people from around the world looking for less of a commodity tea because those who can afford it want something specialized from whether mm-hmm. it's Colombia or Glenburn, right? And we want these speciality teas because we can afford it. We don't want the regular commodity tea like the majority of the world is drinking um, because we could just drink you know, tea all day long. But if we're going to have a special moment, have a special tea time, make it special for us, or in Western countries, I feel mm-hmm. like more people are becoming educated and understanding are willing to support those tea growers or those tea estates like yours because we want to know the story and we want to know what makes that lot or batch special Mm -hmm. and i think the smaller growers they're not necessarily there yet in india because it's just a hodgepodge like a mixture of everything No, I'll tell you why the small growers cannot be bought specialities because the small grower, none of the small growers has enough leaf to support a factory. It's true. Unless, (laughs) right? So they sell the leaf to factories and it's called a bought leaf factory, B-L-F, bought leaf factory. And the bought leaf factory gets its material from 10 different growers, right? So it becomes a hotspot, just as you say. Today, the only ones who can make a specialty tea are people like us, 
we've got the know-how, we've got the knowledge, but the point is that you may like to have the speciality, but the Americans don't want to pay. The problem happens not at the American consumer level, it is the American importers. For I, I went and attended a, a, a tea convention in Colorado a few years ago, and I saw some statistics and saw that whereas the price of tea that was imported had increased only 8% over a decade, the price of tea at the consumer level had gone over by over 100%. <laughs> so what is happening in the tea industry is that the, 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 the bulk of the money, the profits, the surplus, is not going to the grower, right? It is, not, it is going not even to the middleman who is importing the tea. It's basically going to the person who are marketing the tea to the consumer. He is making a whopping profit, and that is probably true of all commodities because we have no control on the price at which he will sell. And as a result of this, today, tea, I know for tea, it was sure, we're on a crisis. We just simply, the people tell us, our workers tell us, we want this facility, we want that facility, you should pay us more, 100% we agree. We want to increase the wages, but it has to be based on a capacity to pay. We can only pay as much as we earn. We cannot do more than that. And this is the crisis where we have, we call them all the hypocrites. They want to sit on top and say, you should do this, and you should do this, and you're not doing this, and you're exploiting the workers and doing this, but they won't, the money they're not going to pay, money they want to ha have all for themselves. So, Jenny, this is a big crisis. Tea, is, tea in India is today in a very critical situation because its capacity to pay is not there. That's all. There's no problem. I would like to, in my gardens, I'd like to double the wages. There's no reason why I shouldn't. They deserve it, but where's the money? I get That's it. True. I can only get it from the consumer, unless the consumer is paying, mind you. If the consumer, if I could sell the tea directly to the consumer like Charlie does, I would be in heaven. I would <laughs> have more than enough money. And right? I'm glad that you have Shalini reaching out to people, you know, like yeah. me, and meeting people and saying, "How can we get this direct from farm to to the consumer?" Yeah, that, yeah. it makes a big difference. Yeah. Mm hmm. Especially like the quality of life, because I've seen the people, you know, pretty happy there and like wearing really nice clothes, picking tea every day. You know, to me, it's like very, very flashy <laughs> clothes and very bright and they look happy. But, you know, life could be better if if people knew that there's this issue with the transition into getting the, the tea into the final consumer's hands that somewhere in there there's a stop, you know, something is, you know, not allowing the money to flow all the way to. That's right. To Thank them. you. Yeah. Oh, I, I yeah. do have a question, though. How much tea can be produced on an acre of land or not an acre? Like, let's say a hectare. I know you guys measure. No, no, I'm, I'm quite comfortable with an acre. An acre is 43,000 square feet. And if you want, one bush can grow in about two square feet. You calculate Anyway, to answer your question, in one acre of land, it depends where you're growing it. If in Assam, in one, day, one hectare, as you say, one acre would be about 2,200 pounds of tea. Wow. That is 1,000 kgs per acre. Of dry leaves and or fresh leaves? 
this is mate team, mate, teammate. Okay. Uh, it's not green leaf. Uh, to get it into green leaf, you multiply it by 4.5. So, so, so if I said the figure, pardon me? Oh, so yeah. that's a lot of bags of tea. Yeah, but but in in, in a place like Darjeeling or Nilgiris, it would be maybe one twenty, maybe twenty five percent of that, because it's a high elevation. The climate is not so salubrious; it doesn't grow so well. That's it. But it grows better. Now the thing is, uh, there's one philosophy, notwithstanding whatever I said about organic tea. I believe that anything that grows slowly grows best. So organic tea grows much slower than inorganic tea. That's a fact. So maybe you are maybe you are having a taste here tea. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm saying both things at the same time. But uh, yes, anything that is growing slowly, that you're not forcing it to grow fast, should be a better, better cup or a better plant. And a better human being also. <laughs> okay. Well, great. Well, thank you everyone for joining us today for the Essence of Tea podcast. By the way, if you want to learn more about tea, we offer three online classes at sippingstreams.com. The online classes come with all of your supplies and materials and we ship anywhere in the world. The three classes are the Essence of Tea, Kombucha Culture, and Matcha Madness. Go to sippingstreams.com and sign up today.